everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. As always, I'm Colin, your main host. What's up, everybody? Joining me this week, we've got Susan back for more discussion. What's up, Susan? Hey, Colin. How are you? I'm I'm doing well, all considering the world around us is on fire, but, you know, uh, we've got Legend of Korra. At least we don't have Murder Hornets. <laughs> this is very true. Uh, so, folks, this week we are diving back into our Legend of Korra discussion, continuing from last week, moving our way through season two. And this time we are discussing episode five, The Sting. My goodness. Uh, we are we are at this turning point right now. Things are heating up in the season and we are on the precipice before the legendary double episode of beginnings. So this is a very exciting kind of turning point, but it's also sometimes uh, viewed by some people as a, uh, it's a controversial turning point. Some people don't like it as much. Some people do. It's where a lot of opinions start firing up. Um, But I want to go ahead and dive kind of like right into this uh, because this episode, say what you will, has some very, very exciting moments to it. And it starts off right from the get-go. We open up seeing a boat assaulted by sticky bombs um, and waterbenders. So we kind of see it's the sticky bomb, like remote detonator that sort of that we saw um, combo that we saw at the Southern Cultural Center. So we're starting to see that like these explosives are starting to really come onto the scene and it's this kind of advancement of technology that is taking a lot of people off guard because they're used to bombs with fuses, not bombs where they are just independent and they just explode. But as this happens, the leader kind of ship captain of the boat is able to get off of the boat. And he says that Varric is not going to be happy about this. So it's interesting because immediately we're kind of setting up a mystery as to like what exactly like what what was this ship and what what exactly ha- why is Varric going to be upset about it? It immediately puts a lot of questions out there. Um, but before we can even get to those answers, we go back to the Southern Water Tribe into the Spirit Portal. We see Eska and Desna waiting. They're waiting for their father. And when he emerges from the portal, it's interesting because Desna is like, did you go to the spirit world? And Unalak does not answer. Which is like, number one should be the like flashing sign, neon lights. Like I'm talking Vegas oriented. (laughs) I'm the bad guy moment. But like, I feel like when you're still when you go back and you think about this from the fresh perspective you had you have no clue who really is the true bad guy because between the what happens in this episode at the end of it and what's going on with like him it's like okay i mean he's sort of bad but he could just be jealous of his brother kind of bad not like i'm gonna be a super villain kind of bad Mm. i mean and there's levels i think of being just a yeah, well, it just being a bad character, but like, that's like a really weird thing because it like breaks sort of the rules that we had already set up in the Avatar universe at this point. We had set up rules in the Avatar universe in our minds that essentially those that could really couldn't access the spirit world, and the only one who could was the Avatar when they went into the Avatar state. Technically, 
Now, there were those lines that got blended when the spirits would interact with the physical plane, typically. You know, we think back on the episodes where Aang had that attack in the, in the city, that town, and he had to calm the spirit. And we have these angry spirits that are obviously coming out right now and attacking ships and stuff. But we don't think of anybody but the Avatar really being able to access the spirit world, per se. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a huge point that i think it's just kind of like lost over really fast here mm. um and so i think you know it's one of those things that it's a huge mo and it's, it, like you said this episode is really a turning point this is a turning point we're realizing oh my gosh all of our preconceived notions about the spirit world are now just broken to an extent but then we go back and we think about iroh because someone had said that he had been to the spirit world mm-hmm. it's like whoa so like iroh must know how to go there too so what is this? Like, how do you learn to go there? So it's it's kind of an odd moment because you realize that Iroh was not the only person who could go. And then you also realize that all your notions of the spirit world now have been bended. Uh, <laughs> and, and on top of it, you then wonder because of... It's so weird to say this, but there are some... There are some theories that the reason Iroh was able to go to the spirit world was because he had been touched by death with Luten, mm. and he had touched so much by death because he basically was the, you know, the dragon of the West, of the West. Um. So the question is always now then, well, who did he? How was he touched by death? Mm-hmm. so there's like some theories out there about that and i think this is an interesting perspective this is an interesting point the fact that desna is the one who picks it up is interesting too like and doesn't seem i'm shocked that they are actually shocked yeah because with everything with their dad they seem pretty complacent and this is like that moment where they're like whoa 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 are you in the spirit world yeah, well, it's because we saw in last episode, Desna actually kind of questioned Unalak for the first time and actually was just like, hey, you made these like assurances to Korra. Or you said these things to Korra. It's just like kind of questioning his word. And, you know, I, I think that we're, we're, we're starting to see a little bit like kind of of that crack. But it that's it's what happens when you leave people out. And I think that that is always kind of the uh, the downfall sometimes of antagonists is that they will think that they need to go out on things alone. Um, it's it's why that you know sometimes in the end that they won't be successful because they think that they need to be able to do this on their own. Whereas the strength usually of the protagonist, especially in Avatar, is this the bonds of friendship and being able to work together. The Katang, the the Gaang. Yes. yes. <laughs> Literally. It's almost like my little pony friendship is magic, but it's like in Avatar friendship is magic because it's like bending yeah. magic. There's yeah, like that for sure. fifth element of bending that's called friend bending. <laughs> wow, okay, that didn't come out right. Maybe we should <laughs> Don't so, bend your friends, friends. Don't bend don't bend your friends, no. <laughs> Um, so, but the thing is, though, is that Unalak asks them, like, where is Korra? And they tell him that, like, a spirit got her and she's dead. And Unalak seems a little worried about this. Um, and it, again, I think that when you were saying how it kind of like the scene quickly glosses over some things, 
I think that again, just like, let's sit with this emotion a little bit. Let's sit with how his reaction is to all of this here. And then the other part of this is, would it, this is where I, I have this weird thought here is that why isn't he looking for the next avatar? If he believed Desna on this one, Mm. because if the avatar was dead, that means a new avatar technically should be rising. Where's that avatar? So like, why, why is he not looking for that avatar? If he truly believed her? So I don't think he actually believed her per se. Yeah. But he also looked worried. Cause like, I think like you said, you know, she says a spirit got her. It's like, Oh, crud mm-hmm. like you know i don't think he actually wanted her to fully interact with spirits i guess yeah well maybe he should have taught her how to calm the spirits maybe <laughs> i mean would have saved him a whole bunch of time here yes <laughs> um so yeah this is an interesting scene just because there is a lot there's a lot crammed in that like little snippet that i think leaves a lot open for what we're going to see in the next few episodes that is not it's not exactly overwhelmingly here but we will see it in a few episodes and i i love that it just you always get these little tidbits in avatar and this is just one of those moments where you get it in katara and sorry in um Cora, you get it here you you get these bits and it's just oh well okay like like i said it, it this was one of the scenes where you kind of have to you relearn some of your notions that you thought you had about the spirit world and it just opens up new um parameters and like definitions that we had not previously considered and i think that's where the scene starts building in that hey the spirit world is a lot different than you thought it was in avatar and maybe that's just because you know we're in a different universe where everything has changed as a result of the avatar coming back after 100 years all that information is no longer really deeply hidden within a family it feels the need to come out the kind of final note that i want to make about this uh, moment with eska and desna and unalak is that again we are as you said we're set there are new parameters being set for the spirit world and it's just changing so much and again it's this like Kevin and I talked about it last time is that sometimes there are moments, especially in Korra, but I think especially in book two that I just wish it had a little bit more time to breathe. It had a little bit more where we could kind of see, because I I feel like there's just, there's more we want to know. They are moving this story along at a clip and on one end, sometimes it benefits from that. Other times it hinders it. And I think that in a moment like this, we want to know more. It's not necessarily to say, tell us everything about the spirit world, but I want to kind of see this like emotional weight that this is kind of weighing on Unalak because honestly, after this episode, we don't see Unalak for another two episodes. And it's kind of crazy that we're just like, it's, it's just barreling ahead in that way. Well, and like I said, it gives you like, it gives you this little snippet and it lets the audience sit on it for like another two episodes before they even come back to what this all technically means. So, Mm. you know, it, it's almost like it allows it to, like it almost allows it to germinate inside someone's mind that like, Mm. essentially what we're going to have now is people who are out in the audience going, wow, if the spirit world is now this and you can actually go to it, what does that mean that somebody went to it who's not the Avatar? You know, we know Iroh technically went, we know he, uh, we don't know what he found there technically, but we knew he had gone. What does this technically mean? 
And I feel like that is, it just sets up so many new thoughts on that end. I mean, it's almost like, it's going to sound really crazy, but how Iroh, if Iroh went, he kind of becomes Gandalf the White. He's Iroh mm. the White. And then like, then Ulaq goes and he's like, Ulaq the the dark one or something like you know <laughs> like it just it, it's humorous into that effect anyway mm-hmm. so um so i think the next the next scene like you said it goes at a clip so there's a lot of pieces here that we have to talk about tonight which are crazy in amounts but mm-hmm. they all have some significant meaning to the whole plot overall yes so immediately we cut to back to republic city to a mover clip of nuktuk Hero of the South. <laughs> Susan is flexing right no one now, can true see this, but fashion. Like I'm totally flexing. <laughs> I'm like in a Ruth Bader Ginsburg shirt right now and just flexing at the same time, just so we're all clear, like what this could look like in your minds. Um, because, you know, that's where we're at in this world. Yes. Um, no, like, I, okay, so personally, I love everything with Numtuck, Hero of the South. I don't yes. know why it makes me so happy. <laughs> but it does. It's it so good. Does. It's so funny because it, like, it taps I into don't. all those old school, like, uh, just it's like. all, like, uh, World War II propaganda films, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I love about it is, like, I was such a history nerd growing up that, like, World War II was my jam. Like, if you ask me specific weird questions about it in a trivia night, I could probably can answer some pretty strange things for you. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I... I read everything I could get on it and like even some stuff they never taught you in school, like about how they were doing, you know, vaccination trials on some of our, or some of our uh, people in the uniform, like, you know, that should definitely mm. not have been happening as a government, but it was, it's weird history stuff that, you know, it, it's, you know, you try to get a really great grasp on it. So this stuff about like the idea of like war bonds and, the the nun talk hero of the south stuff like it really just it just throws you back to that whole idea of like 19 and just the culture itself drops you back to like 1940s world war ii big band era um like it it really starts to make that like that picture for you in your head and since most Mm -hmm. of the audience is very familiar with those ideas like what they learn in school what's presented to them they they they're able to kind of grasp that and then give themselves much more um hold on this world so like i love everything on the tech stuff yeah and, and it's interesting because you know it's it's truly like it's got such a recognizable formula because you have the hero you have this like over-the-top villain like unalak's like nuktuk version is the most extra villain like just arched eyebrows Look, everything about his all outfit he had to do everything was just be like this with his with his mustache like pulling yes. it out and be like yes i'm going to tie you to the railroad tracks now hmm. even though i really won't tie you to the railroad tracks you'll just be bound and laid on the track so they can just pick you up like and, everything uh, and i got the timetable of the train wrong it won't be here for another two hours for some reason i don't know why i just didn't lay you down here three minutes before the train shows up whatever oh like my God. literally this is the most i mean ah uh, 
it is so over the top, but it is so mm-hmm. much what those war propaganda films were. Like the war, pro- and he literally tells Bullen that he's like, "We're gonna make a film that's gonna make everybody cheer for the South, and it's gonna build, you know, it, it's gonna build um, support for the South." And that was the whole point. Like even Varick says it to Bullen when he's making it. Mm. Not dark. Yes, and, and I mean even even with like the formula, you even have like the the voiceover of, of Pabu and. Talk, get out of this. <laughs> Will he be able to survive? Tune in next time to Nuttenduck, Hero of the South. Like that. The, I is... mean, yeah, you've got that, but even like the animals too, like with uh, just like be like oh, not oh, no, terrible. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was the <laughs> dad joke. And then just like the squeaky voice, like Pabu, like being his like little companion of just no, like no, no, talk. whatever will we do. <laughs> and then of course you have the damsel in distress with Ginger. So it's it's no, just this no. it's this whole formula. It, yeah. And you know he's water bending. He's doing all of these crazy Which, feats. I love Bolin's version of water bending. <laughs> you an earthbender playing a waterbender, which is the best. <laughs> It's so good. And oh. it, it really is just such a uh it's such a beautiful nod to that. But it's also kids, it's beautiful, but it's also you understand the power of this because you see the audience, you see them enraptured. You see they them are just cheering. Excited. They're mm-hmm. like in thrilled. None tough, none tough, none tough. I mean, like they are literally gobbling this up. Like it is no, it's I mean so for those of us that for those of you that listen to this and aren't too familiar with the idea of the World War II propaganda films, like think Captain America. He is literally their Captain America, except think mm-hmm. Captain of the South, okay? Captain of yeah. the Southern Water Tribe. That is Nuntalk. Yeah. If they could literally give him a shield, they would have. <laughs> Absolutely. Um so as this uh transitions, we go back to the police station. Uh, as uh, Lynn interrogates the ship captain about the stolen ship, um, he talks about how there was uh, these bombs with no fuses as Mako and Asami are kind of looking on through the one-way glass. Um, Mako then decides to go in there, tries to make a suggestion, but Lynn doesn't want to hear it. Um, it. It's interesting because this is the second time that we have seen Mako be like, I think I understand what is happening with this. But Lynn being like, my dude, you are a rookie. Know your place. You are not just going to come in here and throw out these wild accusations. But it's interesting because this scene really struck me because it's the second time we see Lynn acting this way. And part of me really wondered how much of this obsession of maintaining the pecking order and not letting Mako kind of have that say is perhaps an echo of her own experience under her mother. Because we can absolutely see, and just in terms of like maintaining that order and structure, it, we saw that in Toph with like the way that she calls her students lily livers in the comics. Like she absolutely is like understands the importance of this hierarchy. And obviously, Lynn has these massive shoes to feel, uh, massive shoes to fill with Toph. So I don't know. I don't did that strike you as something maybe that that is the case or is this just like Lynn just doing her job and like this is mainly just like Mako not knowing his place. I kind of feel like it's twofold. One, I think it is a little bit of the pecking order thing, but I think it is also that 
Lynn, it's going to sound really terrible what I'm about to say, but essentially that Lynn has an I is charged with something. She understands that the tensions in Republic City are super high right now. And the police are being put in a position where they have to, they have to figure this out. They have to get it done. It's, it's important. And, you know, as somebody who's in leadership, it's all on her really. And I think she has an idea of what's going on, but she knows she needs to get to that. She needs to get evidence. She needs to be able to get to that point. Like she needs to flip a witness. She needs to flip something. And for her to do that, requires a certain procedure in her mind to do investigative work and here comes this guy who literally just got there and is basically trying to like one up her roll in there and be like it's this i believe it's that and you're one you're going into a boss and you're basically telling her how to do her job in front of her subordinates no Mm. two um I think Lynn doesn't like when people like try to usurp and do her job. And I get that point. So yeah, that's probably what it also is, is like, um, excuse me, sit down. (laughs) And two, and three, I think it really is the fact that she probably has a process and she really needs to, like, she understands the laws where Mako is just kind of like a normal cop. He doesn't really probably understand that if you really want to get these people and you want to put them behind bars, you need certain things to be in place so that the litigators can ensure that that happens in a court of law. Mm-hmm. And I think she sees, she's 20 steps ahead of Mako. Mako's in the present. She's already five to 20 steps ahead thinking, I want these guys to be in prison. How do I get them there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always what this is really about is like, you know, not being so in the moment that you lose sight of what the end game is. But I think mm. it also is, you know, there's a lot to learn from both ends of that. So Yeah, definitely. And no, also I, that I think Mako that's a, that's is mansplaining point. how to do her job. Yes. <laughs> Mako needs to sit his rear end down this episode. In a lot of ways, yes. <laughs> so uh, in response to this, Mako and Asami, they make a plan to run a sting operation hence the name of the episode, uh, to try and get whoever's stealing the ships and their cargo, but they need help. And I love this moment. I had to rewind this moment because you, like, as they're talking, like, yeah, but, like, we don't even have a ship. And as it goes out from this, it goes to this wider shot of them, and in the middle, between the two of them, we see Varric just going, hmm. <laughs> He's like, what's this? I want in on this. <laughs> Just hey, a lurking. I got ships. Let's do it. And they're like, well, we can't tell you much. He's like, I love not knowing things. <laughs> and it's interesting because he is playing kind of just this unassuming, very almost naive, uh, just eccentric uh, capitalist. And it kind of makes him seem a little bit more innocent than he might actually be. Um, oh, there's a whole lot of Eric. Mm-hmm. So, but the question is, is they have a ship, yes, but now they need the manpower. They need muscle. And they need muscle. And where do they go? They go to the triple threat triads. Okay, let's back up. <laughs> How? Like, and you expect loyalty from them? Did Mako, like, hit his head and just lose all common sense between... <laughs> He would have been better just putting out a want ad for benders. 
Yes, absolutely. No, and I mean that—that's the thing. It just, I, it really is this very questionable decision. Whereas you know, with Mako, he's just—it feels very like brash. Asami, she's got motivation because the thing is, her company—it's about to go under, and she has to do whatever she can do. But the thing is, is that Mako. He has the opportunity to try and do it right and try and do it in a way that is actually going to like actually look out for Asami. Instead, he's going with the quick, easy route to try to get in. And that is going to the mob for help. Again, back to the idea of when he rolls in there while, you know, Bayfon is basically interrogating somebody like, oh, I'm going to do like. Don't jump the gun. You were literally running into this without thinking of the actual possibilities. Like, it should have been pretty evident that triple threats would obviously double cross them. Mm-hmm. That should have been evident to the get-go. Now, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where you're like, I can't believe you're that stupid. But at the same time, I can believe he's that <laughs> stupid. Which is really sad to say about a character. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, does Asami not have anybody on payroll that she could have just totally pulled into this that was muscle? Right? I mean, like, she's going to have some she, security forces, right? She's probably, I don't know, though. Her her expenses are probably, uh, uh, or at least her, like, Look, I feel like she's not going to have a lot of money been, right now. Let me hear, hear me out on this one. What would have been better is for them, since Varric gave him a ship, do you have any security muscle? Now, granted, what we learn later, you know, that's kind of odd, but it would have made more sense to go ahead and just ask him for some muscle and not say anything else about it. Because mm. I'm pretty sure if somebody's got muscle running around, it's Varric. Absolutely. Well, and it's interesting because, like, do you... I, I think, again, it would have been interesting to flesh this out a little bit more. Maybe see them try to do things right. Maybe see them try and do that. And then it's just like the clock's ticking. Asami's in trouble. And it's just like, okay, we're left with only one choice. We have to go to them. And it's like, they don't like it, but they have to do it. To me, that feels a little bit more compelling. But in this instance, with them going directly to that, again, it makes it makes Mako look stupid. And it really is just like this questionable moment where you're like, why, why would he do that? He knew like how bad these dudes were. And it just, it, it, that, that again, I think it's, it's that again, when I was saying earlier, this is where we're starting to get into a little bit of the territory of uh, the controversial sides of this season, because the way that the story keeps ramping up like this. And obviously Mako knew enough people that were in the pro bending circuit that obviously can bend very right? well and fight. Why not hire them for a stand yes. operation? At least, you know, those people would have obviously, you know, while they have no exact loyalty to you specifically, they would have taken the money and done that Yeah. rather than, you know, and it would have been, I don't know. It's just, it, and you have to think like, okay, if you're a Mako and you know, that somebody who works technically as a firebender for the mob, for the mob, mind you, was implicated in your mind for what happened. Why would you hire the mob? <laughs> like, yeah. really? That is like, 
And I don't care if they're warring factions of mobs or the mob has like, you have to imagine the mob probably has some form of gentleman's agreement that they don't snitch on each other. Yeah. You have to imagine that that basically is a gentleman's agreement that we don't do these things. Here's a handshake. Let's roll out. Like, there's nothing written in stone, but at least a spoken word agreement, if you will. And to think that he thinks that the mob is doing it. Yeah. Again, it's it. they went to the triple threats because that was going to move the story forward for the double cross. That's why this was part of the story and why they went to them, because it was it it needed to fulfill a greater like story fulfillment. And that is, again, where we're starting to get into, I think, the... Uh, but again, and I want to note this, it's everyone is very critical always of season two. And I think it's, you know, I I think that I have, these past few episodes, it's definitely been the most I have critiqued any season in terms of, like, not, like, absolutely loving it. Because it's also, I mean, it's how I felt in revisiting that. I'm feeling it again. I'm still enjoying it. But we also have to take this with a massive grain of salt that the way that Mike and Brian were kind of given timelines. And if, uh, in case you guys didn't tune into our recent episode, uh, when I talked with Kevin Coppa, he reminded me that during season two of Korra, while they were producing it, this was in the middle of the writer's strike. They were working with not a full team of writers. And I the forgot thing is, about that until you mentioned mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah, I forgot. And the thing is, is like that makes a huge difference when you don't have a group of writers in the room to all be able to kind of keep that kind of stuff in check well, or make especially if it's not a consistent group of writers in a room yes. because a consistent group of writers has the same idea, same thought. They were go- they'll come back to it the same way they initially thought and how they were putting it together. You introduce a new team of writers to pick up the thoughts of the old writers. And it's like. I don't know exactly where in their minds they were going with it. I mean, they don't necessarily write everything down, you know, to a T. They they write down what's coming and then they have this grand epic thought, but they don't give every detail on how to get there, per se. Because, um, you know, that's just what it is. And I think, I think season two, you know, we be, we're critical of season two, but we're critical in a way that because we love it and we know that there are elements of season two that when we dive into it, we get these snippets, we really think through um, essentially the overarching picture of what we're learning. This is when we see the characters grow. We see the character development occur. We see the plot get deeper than what it was on the first. Like, you could almost think that season one, while it was great, it was epic, it was, there's a lot of great, you know, rich items to it. The plot was pretty much on the surface level. There's a terrorist. He's doing these things. He doesn't like benders. The end. Here we have plots that are so ingratiated with one another that we don't know totally what the full picture is yet, but we know it's not good, whatever it is. And I think that is key here is that, you know, this is actually more closely aligned in this season with real world potential problems than prior seasons. Like, yes, the prior season definitely had some real world issues, but like, this season you're looking at you know um just bad police bad cops good cops you're looking at you know essentially government trying to soothe the populace so that they don't understand fully what the picture is but at the same time trying to maintain order you have warring factions warring factions you have complications with the money that's tied in with it 
Then on top of it, you have corporate espionage. Mm-hmm. Which Absolutely. is crazy. <laughs> like, and then you're adding in the whole spirit element and like, you know, a whole civil war happening within a nation. It's like, it is literally nuts. It is a, but that is how the world is. It's not very black and white. It doesn't have one singular problem that everybody's revolved around constantly. It's multiple problems layered into almost. I mean, it basically is 2020. That's basically what season two is. It's our future 2020. Oh, <laughs> like, no. We should have oh, all no. knew that was going. We're like, we're like, oh, God, it's a dumpster fire wrapped in a bunch of, uh, you know, this with, with some murder hornets and throwing some nuntuck and we're good. Oh, God. Where is, where is our avatar when we need them? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Long ago. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> My husband and I discovered a new avatar. <laughs> so it's interesting because uh, we we after they make this deal, which by the way, Mako promises that Korra could restore Shady Shin's bending, and Asami promises vehicles. Asami can deliver on her promise. Mako, dude, you just broke up with Korra. There's no way you can guarantee that at all. <laughs> Okay, so how do you go to your ex-girlfriend and go, look, I know we broke up, and I know it doesn't seem right right now, but could you maybe, you know, I promised this gangster you would give him his bending back, and I know you really don't like the gangsters or gangs, per se, because you're the avatar, but I needed them to do a job, and they did it. I realized it was outside of what Ben Fom wanted, and it was outside of police work, and I was definitely going to lose my job if this didn't go right, but... <laughs> It did go well, and I need you to restore his bending. Like, how do you have that conversation with your ex-girlfriend who just happens to be the only person that can do this thing, okay? Um, well, I think that that's uh, getting to what you are saying earlier. It is, It. I think that it's one of Mako's greatest flaws is that he does not think five steps ahead. He is in the moment. He is brash. He is, I mean, it's he's a firebender. And it's like he is thinking very much like instant results those kinds of things and again it's the reason why him and Cora like clicked because they both want that kind of instant results not really thinking five steps ahead but you know what when you don't think five steps ahead of where your relationship might end that's also why the relationship ended the way it did <laughs> and it just and Mako is making some very poor choices he's getting desperate and it is endangering not only himself, but Asami and many others too. And we see them on the boat. Uh, and we kind of have a little bit of a reprieve here uh, as uh, um, Two-Toed Ping uh, shows them his extra toes. <laughs> what would you call um, it? What would they call you if you had three toes? Three-Toed Ping, I assume. Yes. Uh, and, you know, Mako confesses that he broke up with the Avatar and the triple and, like, threats no just start razzing him. Yeah, part. no one believes. <laughs> and, like, like, and Asami's just like, oh, this guy what? This says he broke up with the Avatar. It was like, right. You broke right, up with yeah. the Avatar? Uh-huh, yeah, sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we go then, after this short scene, back to the movie set. And Bolin and Ginger have a scene that ends with a kiss not scripted and Bolin is confused about his relationship this is Bolin I I love him to death but you know uh, even Abigail made a point when we were watching this she's like 
this was a creepy Bolin moment by him, like just going for this and not asking for it. And like, this was, it's like, what is fame doing to you, Bolin? What is happening to our Hashtag sweet boy? me too, Bolin. <laughs> Hashtag me too here, okay? Ugh. No, she doesn't want you. Don't just go in kissing her, okay? That's not what she wants. And I mean, but also the thing is, I in it's it's not to excuse Bolin's behavior, but I think it's also it is a uh, it's a sign of someone who is new to acting, because I think the most common thing is just like not being able to separate yourself with the role that you're playing, um, and just like kind of that line being blurred. Whereas Ginger's just like, that is the character. This is me. Which you know. Poor Bolin, in some respects, because why is she also named Ginger in the actual, like, movie on top of her actual name? Because that also, I feel like, is disorienting for him. First, it's because I don't think Varric is sure that Ginger can remember any name but Ginger. Second, <laughs> I don't think Varric remembers any other name other than Junli and Ginger. Yeah. Because <laughs> sometimes he doesn't remember her name. He remembers Shun Li's yeah. name of everybody because, well, she does everything for him. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we then go back to the ship. Um, and this is actually when Two-Toed Pink shows off his extra toes. And Mako just gets frustrated. And he starts looking around. This is when he overhears the triple threats say that they were paid to keep Mako and Asami distracted. That's when they realize they've been double-crossed. Mako immediately uh, is uh, just tells Asami, like, we need to get out of here. And we get this epic, like, escape chase sequence. Um, I mm-hmm. think one of my favorite moments is when they hop into the boat and Mako does this fire-bending attack, like, where it's all in a circle, burns all four of the ropes simultaneously as the boat drops down into the water which by the way this is one of many times that whatever the hell like asami made these boats with or whoever made these boats like these are incredibly durable boats they are smacking down on the water and they are not breaking (laughs) like it's insane it's it's kind of impressive because they like she little they hit that water pretty hard with two bodies in it from you know it's got to be a good what 40 feet off the water yeah So, like, that's a pretty big drop into a body of water, depending. Like, I'm sure if we want to get some... Okay, I'm going to put this challenge out to our audience at this point. (laughs) We need a physics person to essentially uh, calculate the gravitational drop that would occur. (laughs) The the dislocation of the weight in terms of when it hits the water, which, you know, while yes, liquid, because it's so massive, the mass and the molecules would essentially be a little bit more context. And it was cold, so it's almost technically frozen to an extent, which should have made that drop a lot harder when that boat hit. Okay, then if it was, you know, the middle of summer, and then we need them to calculate what the impact upon force would have been and the resulting potential potential negatives to both Asami and Mako who are standing who don't look like they fall down when that water when they hit the water because yeah. technically I believe that given the like the the distance of the fall the 
dislocation of the weight, the mass, and just being able to hit that water, you know, the force of impact should have actually dropped them to their faces on the boat, not had them standing up still to go. But I'm going to let one of our listeners somehow come up with that plot line and tell us, because honestly, while I'm great at math, I was not a physics major. <laughs> you know, Legend of Portal Cast, we're asking the hard-hitting questions. We need answers for you guys. <laughs> Hashtag boatfall fail. <laughs> so they managed to escape some incredible... Oh my God. I just... Asami is so badass in this scene. I okay, I love her we, so much. Asami is just a badass. Let's stop yes. there. Asami is... We, I thought we established this in season one that Asami was badass. I mean, we did, but it's just... But this just, is more it's, reaffir- it's just reinforcing her badassness <laughs> yes. here. Because like, I feel like the beginning of season two opened up with an unsure Asami, a a very different picture of what we had of Asami. And now we're getting back to Asami the badass. Yeah. Well, it's, it's her wanting to defend and like really be able to fight for her company and fight for her legacy and fight for restoring in a way. She's kind of restoring the honor of her company because it was dishonored by her, uh, by her father. So, you know, she's kind of on her own little Zuko journey herself. (laughs) Just regain my honor. (laughs) So they manage to escape, and that's when they realize that why were they being distracted? Because all of her stuff stolen from the warehouse. We get this incredibly sad moment where they are standing in front of this, and Asami sees just everything crumbling before her. And, you know... It's Mako is again. Asami is like, I can't believe this has happened. Mako, he doesn't even like take a moment to say, I'm sorry, or this must be so like terrible. He is immediately trying to problem solve. He's immediately trying to do this. It's just like, my dude, read the room. She says that. (laughs) She says that she's like, Mako. Not now. Like, she literally puts her foot down on that. And I think that's the most telling moment of Mako trying to, like, problem solve everything. And it's like, stop. Just Mm -hmm. stop. It's at that point where they're like, I just, no. Mm -hmm. You really do question Mako's ability to have any empathy (laughs) at this point. Yeah, like, it, it's it's it really is like he's so focused on the job and he's not even doing his job that great. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, but then we get this moment where it's like because like Asami kind of is just like, hey, I need this like empathy in this moment. And then finally she puts her foot down about this and then it ends with a kiss because oh God, I think most, it, no. And it's just, I I think that it's also that this I didn't understand because like I can understand like Asami going in for like a hug going in for something like this. But like, I, I feel like this is a devaluing moment for Asami's character when she goes in for a kiss on this. I don't know. I mean, am I, uh, what's your, what's your take on this? So no, I mean, you ever heard of like 
she is so in shock in that moment. She's lost mm. everything from her father, her mother, to the company that her family had built to, you know, she's, she's, she's just, everything is gone in her life that she once knew. And, you know, here's this person that's here with her that at one point she saw something with, and he's trying to protect her. And even though she's really upset by the fact that basically he just continuously problem solving, isn't really trying to give her the empathy. She wants to feel anything but what she's currently feeling, which is hopelessness and desperation. Mm. It's almost like, this is really going to sound awful. The second one I'm about to say, you ever heard of like the idea between like, um, how people are so grief stricken that they have, they, you know, they have intimacy before a funeral. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's that weird psychological thought that essentially you are looking for life when all else seems dark. Mm. And that that is like so while I think it's it's I feel like it does devalue Asami's character a little bit. It's not that I don't understand it. I think mm. it just again no. And I think Asami realizes later that was a big no. But I think I think it's like that idea of like essentially like that grief and in, grief intimacy. Like yeah. she's grieving, basically. She is literally grieving the death of everything in her life. Her life is dead. Like that's what she's grieving, and she just clings to whatever she knew to be familiar, to be what she want. That time when she was happy, which was familiar, and it happens mm. to be standing there in the form of Mako. And I don't. If it had been someone like Bolin with her, I don't think it would have happened. Mm. Let's just put it that mm -hmm. way. Yeah. No, I actually, you know what? I you that's that's a pretty compelling argument. I definitely understand that. And uh, have you ever seen uh, the movie High Fidelity? Yes. So it's similar that's exactly moment. What I was thinking yeah. About. yeah, yeah. So like similar moment uh, with like um, I can't remember her character's name, but towards the end of the movie, same thing. I think she loses like a parent or something. Yes. And it's just like she's like, I want to feel anything except for this, this in this moment. So yeah, I you know what I I definitely understand that. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, but again, it's just like it it is just this very low moment for her. Um, so Mako, he decides to dig deeper. He wants to try and find answers. And, you know, for all of his like bad decisions, his saving grace is that he is truly persistent and that he will not give up. Even if his initial lead was really bad. Yes. He is still persistent on the fact that something doesn't add up. And that in and of itself is probably one of the redeeming qualities of Mako is that while he may be wrong about every way to get to that, the persistency of the fact that something is not right or well in the city of Republic is really helpful to him right now. Yes, absolutely. So he goes to the movie set and this is where we see, you know, Bolin uh, is... Uh, who? Uh, by the way, during this episode, this is the second time we didn't talk about it earlier. But when like Mako went to go ask Bolin for help, Bolin was just like, um, it, like their apartment's tricked out with all this like fancy stuff. Now he's got a hot tub in it, and he's just like, hey, by the way, you know, side effect of being a star, you get paid lots of money. <laughs> it's like, you know. But then as Mako is asking for help earlier, he was just like, he goes, aren't you gonna help me? And Bolin's just like, oh, I don't know. 
figure it out, Mako. He's like, yeah, remember? Because you said that to me earlier, <laughs> which, you know, to be fair, I think Bolin is incredibly justified for saying that because you I know agree. what? He was left high and dry by everyone and he deserves a little bit about that. Bolin's getting wrapped up in the fame a little bit, you know, to be fair. But at the same time, you know, he he did not, there was no reason why he needed to help Mako in that moment no. because Mako was not there for him when he needed him. No. And, and I think it, 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 I think you're right in that respect is that, you know, when Mako needed him, when he needed Mako most, Mako wasn't there. Yes. And I think I get it. Yeah. So it, as he is talking with him here, you know, Bolin's talking about, it's like, well, we got to do these like hierotechnics. And he's like, and they're like, he's like calling it like this, like whole, he giving it this fancy thing. And then you hear the direct, like the director call out. It's just like, all right, ready for the explosion scene. And he's just like, yeah, I guess it's a, that's what they call it too. <laughs> and as this is going off, like, I, I love this moment. It is actually one of my favorite moments from this episode is as Bolin is running and the explosions mm -hmm. are going off. It goes to Mako's face, and we see like the explosions. Yeah, in his like eyes. all of a sudden, like all mm -hmm. of a sudden, you just see the lights turn on. Yes. In his head. Yeah, and, and like, it's oh, uh, yeah. It, it it's oh. a great that is great visual storytelling because mm -hmm. that is like we understand what As is happening audience. in this moment. Yes, yes exactly. Like, we and don't even Mako need dialogue right. here. We just need the visionary concept, and we're like. Light bulbs yes. are going on in this man's head, finally. Absolutely. So and then... Uh, and, and so Mako goes to talk to the to the guy who's running the explosions. And he says, you know, yeah, he goes... He goes he's like, how are you making these explosions go off? And he's like, oh, it's like a Varric Industries exclusive. And he shows him the detonator. And then suddenly Mako is just like, welp, there it is. Mako then immediately leaves the movie set. And he goes to tell Asami that he, he, as he's walking in, he's like, I think I found out who's behind this. And Asami tells him, I, I mean, this is great, but Varric just bought controlling interest in the company. He's going to save my company. Asami is like over the moon where she was at this lowest point. And now like her company is actually going to find life again. But then we get the most legendary of looks. Of all time, this is probably one of my favorite expressions of any character in this show, is as we see Varric turn around and just that smirk, that smile on his face. And it's interesting because this is the most kind of sinister that we have seen Varric. I feel like this moment, this is a glimpse into a brief moment of who Varric is underneath that eccentric facade this is this is like what i call genius mm. but at the same time incredibly um morally bankrupt yeah yeah basically <laughs> we're that. um but like the idea that essentially this is this is like corporate corporate espionage 101 and mergers and acquisitions like mm -hmm. essentially he goes in and he gives this persona of being this eccentric, crazy, kind of stupid guy who just has a lot of money and he's sort of dumb and he, and he like, you know, he has all these crazy harebrained things, but behind the scenes, he's actually relatively intelligent. Mm -hmm. 
and and not only does he get a share of Sonic's company, he gets a controlling interest. Mm-hmm. Now, for those of you out there in the world who um, don't study business, let me explain this to you. Essentially, he has, you know, he could literally just get a board together and throw out Asami at this point. Yep. And that's kind of where we're at because his shares combined with maybe if there's somebody else who buys in or whatever, technically his share is more than Asami's at this current juncture. Yeah. And that is, it's like if she had been taught any business, she would have understood that you don't ever give up 51% of your company. Like this is Shark Tank 101. Yeah. (laughs) Do not give Kevin O'Reilly 51% of your company. You retain the 51%, he can have 49. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I I really wish that Daniel could have joined us. And I can't wait to talk to him next because I think it was like two or three episodes ago when Daniel said, uh, he was like, yeah, he goes, I don't know. I don't know if he, if Varric is just like playing stupid or if he really is stupid or if he's kind of just like manipulating things like behind the scene and everything. He goes, I'm watching him very closely. And I really just like, I, I, I want to hear. Didn't, didn't Daniel watch it with us at the beginning? Or is this his first time through? This is his first time watching season two. Yeah. He didn't know where Varric's trajectory was going. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. That's gonna blow his little mind. <laughs> Daniel's so, brain's gonna be like this. Yes. <laughs> so you know, as uh, as as Varric is giving him this look, Asami's just like, "Well, you were saying something about you found out who stole it," and then Mako goes, "Yes," and I'm very close to getting the evidence I need. And I think that this is also when it clicks for Mako that he has to understand. Again, this is where this is where Lynn's brain would have been at the beginning of this episode. Lynn's brain would have been at the very end of this episode. She would have known like, okay, this is what we need beforehand. But now Mako's just like, oh, oh, okay. I need evidence. I need lots of evidence to be it's able like, to do this. <laughs> it's almost as if. So you're watching in real time when somebody is realizing that they just can't go on hunches and their gut and Mm. what people tell them. They need physical, hard evidence to make their case. Yep. And Mako is just piecing that together like, oh, oh, crap. That's what I need. Mm -hmm. Oh. And Varric already knows this. Like, Varric is like 40 steps ahead of Mako. He's like, really pretty boy. (laughs) because <laughs> it's like yes. what the look is it's almost like a challenge like mm-hmm. try it yeah absolutely. you already have been doing everything wrong to begin with so what makes you think now you're gonna get it right like it's almost yeah. as if he realizes that mako is in over his head oh yeah for sure like, definitely he realizes that mako is rocks <laughs> <laughs> he's got a lot of rocks for the fact uh. that he's a firebender he's got a sure lot of stone upstairs <laughs> That's what he's putting together. Like, maybe, yes. like, hmm. Mm. And it uh. always makes me wonder, too. So, like, this is the weird thing, right? Like, I think this is always something that I've always kind of gone back to is the fact with him being so involved with Bolin and keeping Bolin kind of separate from Mako. I think he's one of those people who realize that if the brothers are separated, 
there's less likely of a chance for Mako, who happens to be in law enforcement, to piece together what's going on. Yes. And I feel like he kind of figures that out pretty quickly, that Mm -hmm. Mako needs others to really help him piece that together. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And no, I so, mean, Mako, Mako, has, Mako has his strengths, but he also has his weaknesses. And that's where the group dynamic really comes in. That's why you need people, because you need I them mean, to help lift you up at, in the places where you're not strong. Yeah. And at first, it wasn't really so much about that because he just liked Bolin. But I think he continues to keep Bolin for Mako because he sees it maybe to that extent. He also just realizes that Bolin is beloved by people. So period. He's just going to make money for him. Yeah. Definitely. So we close out this episode with a final scene setting us up for the next two episodes. We see Korra. Hey, wow. The Avatar in the show again. What? (laughs) She's alive. And she wakes up on a beach as fire sages approach. We haven't seen them in a while. (laughs) No, we have not. And what's really cool is that these are like all the fire sages. They're actually pretty young. Like they're all like. It's almost as if, and I think this kind of is a nod to like the comics in a way, is that the older fire sages may have been more aligned with Ozai and everything going on there that essentially it's almost like an overthrow of the old fire sages and literally what you're seeing is the rebirth of the fire sages through these younger group that may be more attuned with respecting Zuko and the family after Ozai. Yes, absolutely. Definitely agree. So it turns out that Korra has lost her memory because they say, Avatar Korra, what brought you to these to our shores? And she's like, who's Avatar Korra? Dun, dun, dun. And it's just like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so and... you have an Avatar who doesn't know she's the Avatar. Mm-hmm. And so we are left with lots of questions, lots of uncertainties. And that sets us up getting ready for the next two episodes. So, Susan, final thoughts on this episode? Farrakh is a damn genius. Yeah. (laughs) I never thought those words would come out of my mouth when I started watching season two. But to get to this episode and realize that, my God, that man's a genius. You don't want to say it. Because you kind of like the idea of the affable, lovable Varric. But Mm -hmm. now you're like, holy he's amazing and you're mm-hmm. like and then you start to wonder if really june lee's pulling all the shots here at this point like you i know start right to really think that, like, you're like okay is it really june lee is pulling the shots like what's going on here ah, mm-hmm, ah, ah. Mm-hmm. you and uh, mako slow your roll mako yes and don't be making out with asami right now Probably not good when your ex-girlfriend is the Avatar and you have no idea where she is right now. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> like, no. Uh, like, I... Uh, is it like is it like a guy thing? Like, do they just not think with certain elements? Like, is it... What happens here? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe... I, I, I think that, like, it it all goes back to the way that Mako said that you need to end relationships, like tearing off a leech. I think that that is the fundamental core of what is wrong with, uh, with, with Mako in this situation. And how laughs at him because he didn't even do that. Yeah. Like he is awful at it. Yep. Because even Bolin goes, oh, is that how you broke up with the Sami? And he's like, ah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So my goodness. Wow. Uh, this episode was just, it was very fun. Had some interesting questions. I think we start to see again, some more critiques, but also it all is worth it for that moment with Varric turning around in the chair. It's, it's the best moment. <laughs> I mean, it's back to the whole point of we critique it because we love it. And there's just such richness to this season mm-hmm. that if we didn't critique it and pull it apart the way we do, we would miss all of that richness, I feel like, because it would all mm. look like a hot mess to us if we weren't thinking about the overarching picture of what was happening here. Absolutely. Can't agree more. Uh, all right, folks. Well, thank you so much for tuning in, as always, for all of your support. Thank you, Susan, for uh, joining thank me you, and Colin. for your wonderful insight. <laughs> um, guys, you know where to find us on social media. It is Facebook and Instagram at Legend of Portalcast, on Twitter at Portalcast Pod. You can find us on our website at legendofportalcast.com. Oh, can, can we say the hashtag for this episode is hashtag read the room, Mako? Yeah, I think that that's honestly that is the hashtag for the entire like every season. Episode <laughs> of being terrible. So oh, hashtag read the room, Mako. <laughs> so uh, remember, folks, if you want to get in on this discussion too, uh, feel free to email us at legendofportalcast at gmail dot com. We like We'd emails. love to hear from you. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Um, And then also, if you want to join in an active conversation, we mentioned it at the beginning of last episode, we have now an official Discord. Uh, So if you are interested, uh, check out the link in our show notes as well as on our website and on our link tree off of our Instagram page to join the Discord. Join us in the conversation. We'd love to have you uh, on the server and lend to the conversation. There's a lot of good stuff there. A lot of Mm -hmm. fun things that we talk about. And we allude to for future episodes. So, yes, Uh, we're also going to be looking into doing uh, like episode watch alongs as well, because you can actually do that through that. So uh, we're going to be doing uh, potential uh, episode watch alongs, uh, kind of be able to kind of have a conversation with that as well um, to be able to join us in. Uh, So stay tuned for more of that in the future. And uh, my God, you aren't doing anything during COVID anyway. So might as well join us. Right. Yeah. Come on, guys. Um, so guys get ready because next week, next week starts, I, I have a feeling we're not going to be able to just confine it into just two episodes. I think it's going to be at least three. I think it's going to be at least three, potentially four, but we're getting into two of the most legendary episodes of Legend of Korra. And that is Avatar Beginnings. We are seeing the story of the first Avatar um, and this is going to be a, a, a this big is setting dive. up everything for what happens in the remainder of Korra. Mm-hmm. Like definitely have to be a part of that discussion because yes. it is, it is just so much to unpack. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, we look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thanks as always for your support. And until then, and until next week, and let us leave.